welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. I'm going to talk to you about prayer, because did you know that we're praying and fasting? Did we mention that? Okay. So, um, you know, Jesus came not just to die for us, but to live for us. By that I mean that he came to live the perfect life that we can learn from. He displayed wisdom, made great choices, good decisions. He fulfilled the calling on his life, which is a pattern for us all to try and achieve as well. He overcame temptations and attacks from the enemy. He loved people perfectly and wholeheartedly and forgave them and lived selflessly and he made great friends and he forgave his enemies. He, um, he paid his taxes and managed his money perfectly. He was generous, he was kind, he was loving and, and as I said, the perfect life. And one of the most important things we can learn from is that Jesus prayed. And the prayer life of Jesus provides principles for us to follow in our lives. And if we want to learn about prayer, then obviously we should look to Jesus and learn from him, which is what his disciples did. And we've got a number of scriptures that will appear on the screen. I think the first one is from Luke 11. And this says that Jesus was in a certain place once praying. And as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples. And we don't know who that disciple was. My guess is it was John, but we don't know exactly. Uh, but they wanted to know how to pray, and they figured Jesus would be able to teach them because they saw Jesus praying so much. So Jesus can teach us to pray. And, uh, you know, some people find prayer difficult, and I think that's probably because I've never asked Jesus, Jesus to teach them how. We just assume we know how to pray, and then we find it too difficult and think, oh, well, it's just it's it's hard it's boring whatever but Jesus is waiting to teach us there's a lot to learn about prayer one man who learned a great deal about prayer was Andrew Murray the great South African pastor and writer author from the 19th century you know he wrote over 240 books you may have heard of him the best known book is uh, entitled with Christ in the school of prayer so I think it's a fantastic title because it implies exactly what Andrew Murray had going on in his life, lessons on prayer with Jesus. He, was see, he saw his life as being a student of the Lord, of living the right life, and of course of prayer. And Andrew Murray, um, well, he learned one or two things about prayer. And among his classic quotes are these gems that I'll read and put on the screen as well. He said this, The measure of believing continued prayer will be the measure of the Spirit's working in the church. Direct, definite, determined prayer is what we need. Look at the next one. Time spent in in prayer will yield more than that given to work. Prayer alone gives work its worth and its success. Prayer opens the way for God himself to do his work in us and through us. Let our chief work as God's messengers be intercession. In it, we secure the presence and power of God to go with us. 
And I believe that applies not just to the work of the ministry that we're all involved in, witnessing and sharing our faith and serving in the church and out into the community in some way, but just in our everyday work. You know, sometimes you think, I'm too busy to pray. And then if you make your disciplined time of prayer a priority, it's amazing how efficient you are in your everyday work. Have you noticed that? And if you haven't, then you try that. You know, I think it was... um, Oh, one of the greats, uh, Luther perhaps, you know, prayed ridiculous amounts of time early in the morning and people said, how do you ever have time to pray? And he, he said, you know, basically the more time I spend in prayer, the more I get done, the more I can achieve when I'm out of the closet uh, having prayed. And here's one more quote from Andrew Murray that touches on the, um, the issue of fasting, explains something to us of its benefit. He said, prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Because let me just stop there. You know, let's face it. I love food. Come on, who doesn't love food? Of all the, any, come on. There's all kinds of wonderful food that we enjoy, and there's a lot of comforts and a lot of entertainment, a lot of things in the world. And yet, that can be a draw that pulls us away from some more important things. If you only ever eat, you'll never get any work done. The lawns will grow. You've got to cut the grass and go to work and do stuff. You can't just indulge your whole life. And so you take that you know, to an extreme. You've got someone achieving nothing but indulging their life. Pull it back a little. Separate yourself from some of those indulgences like food and, and screens and entertainment just, just for a few days. And you'll be amazed how much time and attention we have available to pray and to press into God. Even if we just spent the time we normally prepare, eat and wash up from, from cooking the food and the meals in prayer, it has a whole new dimension and time available to pray. Sorry, back to his quote. Prayer is, preaching, sorry, prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps express, deepen, confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. So it's clear when you read that, that there's more to prayer than just that basic cry for forgiveness when we repent and pray to be born again, which is kind of important. You know, first point of prayer, uh, to reach out for salvation and and forgiveness, and, and that's great, and we should all pray that kind of prayer but sadly that's the only kind of prayer people pray and they just cry out to God and maybe occasionally they're in distress and they cry out to God again but apart from that they're just carrying on hoping God's around there somewhere but you know Jesus didn't need to pray for forgiveness for salvation because he's the saviour and yet he's often found in prayer in the gospels so what, what did he pray about? Why did Jesus pray and how and when? Well, I'm glad you asked uh, because we'll look at that. Because we are disciples today, just like that disciple asked, Lord, teach us to pray, so should we. And, um, and I want to look at five different ways and times that Jesus prayed. First one is Jesus prayed when he knew he needed to be close to the Father, which was all the time because uh, in this, he models for us the need for continual connection with our Heavenly Father. You know, Jesus was fully God, but when he came to earth, he became fully man. 
And in doing so, he then faced everything that we face as humans. He faced difficulties just like we face. He, he uh, fought temptations just like we do. And he had feelings like we had, like we have. He had, you know, every day he felt sadness and loneliness and anger and pain and loss and anxiety. And, and with all that going on, Jesus knew that he needed to walk with God, staying connected through prayer. And you read right through the Gospels, Jesus often withdrawing from what's going on so he can just be with the Father. And here are some examples. In Matthew fourteen twenty three. you see it says that after Jesus sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So he's praying for some time. In Mark one thirty three, it says before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Right at the beginning of the day, before the sun rose. Luke 5.16, Jesus found himself, sorry, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So notice a few things from those few verses. He's alone. Now, Jesus prayed with others, and so should we. And we're talking about prayer meetings this week. So it's good. We come together. We pray. We agree. We build each other up, encourage one another, combine our faith. That's important. But that should be undergirded by our personal prayer. Because if you're only ever praying with, your, with other people, your prayers are going to be less powerful than really knowing the Lord, knowing what the Holy Spirit's leading you to pray for when you get together with others. And learning as Andrew Murray did, with Christ in the school of prayer, how to pray. And so Jesus made sure he was just with the Lord, not always with others. Notice also he went out into nature. So two things here, he's, he's isolating himself from people because there's so many distractions, there's so much white noise in society and with people. And of course in nature, we're in God's place God's creation now of course you can go walking along the beach in summer and there's a whole lot of people enjoying God's nature and so it's counterproductive so nature's good but if you want to pray you want to make sure the nature's quiet and you've got a place where it's secluded so you're better off actually locking yourself in a room in your house to be secluded than going out in nature if there's a million people there right and so there's there's nature and there's isolation and solitude and both are good. And then notice also out of these verses, Jesus is just with God, not to do business with God. He's not got a list of demands like we might often have in our prayer life. He's just hanging out. He's just fellowshipping with God. Because friendship and fellowship with people is important. Very good for us. We're called to be socially connected and encouraged and be encouraged by other people. But our best relationship best fellowship, closest connection should be with the Father. And sometimes that's on the back burner because we're so socially busy, we've not made an appointment to be with God. And so it's important for us to prioritise that and, um, and, and let that calling be on us like it was for Jesus. And that calling, you know, was on Jesus at an early age. When you read in the book of Luke, you know, chapter 2, it talks about when Jesus was 12 years old. It's the only insight we have into his life between the beginning of his ministry at 30 and the time that he came to earth and was born. 
Uh, and so there's this passage in Luke. Uh, he's age 12. And you may know the story. It says Mary and Joseph took Jesus to go to Jerusalem because once a year they'd celebrate the Passover there. And then they're on their way back to Nazareth where their hometown was. And they're with a big group of people because everybody had gone to Jerusalem and they're all traveling and they've got friends and rallies. And they assume, Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, assume Jesus is with some other friends in the caravan of people all trundling along. And then it says at the end of the day, they realize Jesus wasn't with them. Then it says, after three days, they finally found him in the temple back in Jerusalem. I just want to stop and let you think what was going through their brain. Because, come on, parents, haven't you lost your children? Help me out. At least give me a nod, even if you haven't, and make me feel better, because I've lost most of my children at one point or another. And, you know, you have a few, you're going to misplace a couple. And, um, <laughs> like that funny movie, the... Um, Home alone. I mean, the premise, we all think, it could have been us. They're on the plane and the guy's saying, I feel like we've forgotten something. They're going on the big holiday, you know, those years ago, and they're flying over the other side of America. I don't know. I just feel got that irky feeling. I don't, and then they go, ah, Kevin. Was that his name? I can't remember. And, uh, and of course, the kid's just having a ball at home. Um, so we've probably, hopefully, for my sake, like I said, we've all lost our kids at some point. But can you imagine the pressure? Mary and because Mary had an inkling at least. I mean, she knew, you know, when Jesus came and Joseph knew I wasn't involved. This is special. This is, you know, she had an angel tell her this son, you know, he's savior of the world. So she's got an idea. This is not just your ordinary baby. I mean, I got other kids because they did have other children. You realize that Mary and Joseph had other kids. So it's like, no offense, James, but you know, if I lose you, I don't feel so much pressure. I'm not going to have an angel knock on my door and say, what have you done? It's the saviour of the world. You can't lose him. Anyway, sorry, I just, I just think it's a funny thought because, um, I mean, I just think, come on, Jesus growing up, how many times, like the teachers, the report cards can do, but can't, can't use that phrase. You know, Jesus needs to apply himself, but no, can't use that phrase. And they're in the staff room. Can anybody tell me, is Jesus in any of your classes, is you know, Mary and Joseph kid, I've, I don't want to keep giving these perfect reports, but it's like, it's, I can't find anything wrong with him. He's at the, t- the top of your class as well. Is he never, is any, he's been in trouble, never. Oh, and it'll be annoying. And, and his brothers, no, how come Jesus always gets the reward chart first, you know, and all the, I just think it's hilarious. Um, so they lose him, they go back and then look in Luke 2, 46, it says, Three days later, they finally discover him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said, what have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he meant. He returned to Nazareth with them. He was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. He just had to be in the father's house. That's the point. He just, as he developed into the full calling of his ministry, it had to be with the father. He just had to be in the father's house. And, uh, you know, we see that right through his ministry. And then one more verse on this point. At the end of his life, his very last words, Jesus on the cross And again, 
his words reveal the commitment that he had to maintaining this close connection with the Father. And in Luke 23, verse 46, it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. And so, you know, he wasn't isolated. He wasn't in all that pain and, and all that terrible anguish. He's committed and he's called to stay committed to the Father. So, obviously, the lesson for us is how much more do we need to walk in prayer connected to the Father if Jesus felt the same, yeah? And, uh, and, and, and as he faced the stuff of life and maintained the call and the presence of God on his life, we can do the same. Whatever you face in life... God's presence can stay and help us walk through it. And that gets us on to the next point. Jesus also prayed when he received really bad news. And he was hit by some bad news at different times. He was persecuted. He had troubles. And he was heavy and downcast. And in those times, he turned to the Father again through prayer for comfort and for strength. For example, John the Baptist, you know, he was Jesus' cousin. And uh, they were involved in ministry together because John had preached preparing the way for Jesus and had even baptized Jesus. And then John gets uh, arrested by Herod, the king, the Jewish king who was in cohorts with the Roman occupying forces. And he um, imprisons John because John had spoken out about Herod's wife's immorality. And, um, And then Herod's having a birthday party for his stepdaughter. And says, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want for your birthday? And she cruelly says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Brought to me right now on a platter. And so Herod has John executed, beheaded right there. So then we read, obviously this is going to affect Jesus in Matthew 14. It says later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area. To be alone. And then you read on. But the crowds heard where he was headed, followed on foot from many towns. And the next verse says, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So notice, first of all, that his first reaction to hearing the terrible news was to get alone with God. Which begs the question, what do you do when you receive bad news? Or when someone you know dies? perhaps someone close to you, perhaps in such a tragic way as this, because death is sadly just part of life for everyone who's left behind, especially as we get older, you know, because Ruth was saying the other day, her parents, their social life, half the time is involved in going to funerals. You know, it's like catch up. We, oh, we'll see you at the next funeral. Hopefully not mine, you know, and they just, they always say, I want a small funeral, which means, you know, there won't be that many of my friends left around because I've lasted so long. But And, uh, And so we do have death in our life when people go and and that's just one version of the bad news that is part of life and the answer at that point of receiving bad news is always to turn to God, not from him and then let God move on our hearts. But you know, sadly, some people turn away from God, run from God, even blame God and get angry with God. 
But he is the best person and the best place for you to go to whenever something hits you, something sad comes. Because the Bible says he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up our wounds in Psalm 147. In um, Philippians 4, it says, the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. And there's so many other verses that talk about the comfort that God could bring. And Jesus found that comfort when he turned to God, his Father, in prayer. And then notice what happens in that passage. He turns to God. He's isolating himself to cope and to deal with the grief. And the people follow him and go, help, help, we need him. And he doesn't say, oh, guys, give me a break. Can't you see what I'm going through? Leave me alone. He has compassion and he helps them and he prays for them. And he, well, he doesn't pray for them. He, he just heals them. He, you know, lays hands and touches and ministers to them. And, uh, and so the lesson there is in turning to God in a time of grief, you get comforted and energized to be able to minister, to keep ministering even when you don't feel like it. Because Jesus obviously would have preferred to just be left alone. But he was able to respond to people's needs. And you know, when we are prayed up, as we say, you know, when you are close to God, then you're ready for ministry all the time. And that's why the Bible says, you know, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he means to us as well, be ready to preach in season and out of season. And, in, and Peter says, I think it's First Peter 3, 15-ish, says, um, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you or for your Christian hope, some versions say. So you can't just, oh, sorry, I'm in a really bad mood. Sorry, I, got no, yeah, I can't help you. I can't, I'm tired. I'm, I, I'm not to anything or shouldn't be to be able to help someone. I like what Ruth said a couple of weeks ago. She was preaching about how she rang a friend. She was needing comfort. I obviously wasn't at home because I always offer perfect amounts of comfort. Uh, so I must have been out visiting someone else who needed comfort. I was visiting Frosty. And because, you know, and Scott, you know, because he was feeling like a thief. Even though he wasn't, he'd been in church and someone had looked at him and said some joke about being a thief, you know, and he was dealing with the potential offence that that was causing. And Frosty had come along and said, I'll comfort you, but I need the, the expert comforter, so I'll call Chris. So I was comforting these guys, and that's why Ruth was missing out on my natural, normal, high level of empathy and comfort. I say that with sarcasm because, come on, men, isn't it tough? The wives give you your problem. And you go, I know the answer. Oh, wrong answer. And you want to say what the solution is, but you're not allowed to. You just have to say, oh. And then the worst is you have to say, tell me more. You don't want to hear more, but you're meant to want to hear more. So <laughs> tough. Come on. Anyway, so we, so back, so, so Ruth rings a friend because I'm hopeless at giving her comfort. And she's got some issue going on, and probably me, you know, and she rings the friend. And she says, hi, how are you? Because you do, you just say, hi, how are you? And the friend jumps in and goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked. 30 minutes later, she's hearing, oh, the friend processing and dealing with all her grief. And then Ruth said, actually, she felt better. And, and, and she didn't get a chance to vent and process and share and offload and all that. But the friend had, and so she's feeling like, oh, well, I'm glad I've helped you. And in doing so, 
I feel better. Isn't that interesting? That's how it works. And if you're prayed up and you're close to God and you're walking with God, you'll be able to help other people. And in turn, you end up feeling good yourself. So Jesus obviously is the master of that because, as I said, he was able to help people. He never turned people away. Ultimately, of course, our help comes from God. And so as good as people are, they're never going to be, husbands included, even well-intentioned husbands who try, uh, uh, you know, we're never going to be the great comforter and counsellor that God alone is. And so that's why we, we look to him for that. Thirdly, Jesus prayed about important decisions. And you see that in uh, Luke 6. He needs the Father's guidance. So he's got wisdom to make the right choices. It says one day... Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, as he does. He prayed all night to God. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. So, you know, he had a whole bunch of followers, but he had a particular role of leadership for just a few. And so this is a big decision. So he has to pray his way into that decision. And he seeks God and then he can be assured that he's in tune with the Father's will. Of course, it's amazing that one of those was Judas. Uh, And so we know in God's great plan, that's still the right decision. And Jesus knew that what would happen. And Judas was part of the plan and he would betray him. But he still, on the other hand, gave him an opportunity. And, And so Jesus, getting the leading of the Holy Spirit, getting in tune with the will of the Father, and and rather than just... And this is for us, rather than just reacting to circumstances, rather than just making a quick or uninformed decision, we have the opportunity to go to God and hear from God and let him inform and help us. Like, uh, look at Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Maybe this is popping up for you too. Classic passage about direction God offers us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do or depend on him, some versions say, lean on him and he will show you what path to take or he will direct your paths. And there's so many other verses in the Bible that promise God's direction and that he will bring through other Christian wise people helping you, through supernatural gifts like prophecy or, uh, and of course the most solid basis from hearing from God is the word of God and the Holy Spirit confirming that in us and and all that and so whether it's choosing your life partner what to do with your business working out what career you're going to pursue where you're going to live all these big decisions should never be attempted without the Lord's help because he can help he's got an idea of what's good it's called the plan he has a plan for you it's a good plan and he's created you to do good things In Christ, which he's prepared in advance for you to do. And he does help you and show you. Usually not a blueprint for the whole thing. Frustratingly, it's usually just one step at a time. In fact, he's got kind of an annoying habit of saying, you take the step and then I'll show you as you step where to step. You know that game that you get the kids to play on holidays and they jump off the edge of the pool and then you call out jump or dive and you're all in this awkward position. It's a little bit like that following the Lord. He says, go, go j- jump, dive. Well, I don't know which. And then you go, dive. <laughs> and you, do you know what I'm saying? It's just, you know, it's, it keeps your faith strong because he's holding your hand along the way, just helping you. 
So God's there. It's always safer, smarter to get his input, whatever you're doing. Fourth thing Jesus prayed for was when he was stressed. Uh, And he did face stress because look at Luke 5. The people again. The report of his power spread faster and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. And again, Jesus had to often withdraw to the wilderness for prayer. So he's busy. And of course, some would say, oh, he's too busy to pray. But he knew different that if he withdrew and prayed, then he would be strengthened to carry on and anointed and be able to minister to the people. Um, Bob Gass the author of the word for today said it this way, by failing to pray, you set yourself up to fail. The reason Jesus never failed is because he never failed to pray. And, uh, and again, even at the culmination of his ministry, we see this continuing because Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Incredible pressure. I think this passage is coming, Matthew 26. He asked the disciples to sit with him while he goes over to pray. And um, it says he became anguished and distressed in verse 37. Verse 38, he says, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he went on a little farther and he bowed down with his face to the ground praying, My father, is it possible let this cup of suffering be taken away from me? Yet or nevertheless, I want your will to be done, not mine. Well, there's stress for you. You know, people say, oh, look at that guy. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. Well, Jesus really did have the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. And you can see the anguish and the tension. And in his conversation with God in prayer, he's talking about walking away from the whole thing. Or at least asking God to take the whole burden off him. And then there's that powerful prayer of consecration. Not my will, but yours. And that gets him through with supernatural strength to face the, the suffering and the, the calling of, of going to the cross. And of course, none of us are going to have to take on such a level of stress, but the principle applies. In fact, it's sad how little can happen to us and we feel so much stress over some little things. And in fact, you can often tell where someone's prayer life's at by how they respond and react to problems. And it's a bit sad and scary for Christian people, how we react sometimes, how quickly we can be upset or angry or hurt or aggressive or offended over something that we should really be able to get through if we were just walking with the Lord and we have his peace and wisdom and we're not just fighting in the flesh. And conversely, it's amazing how much grace God can give you to cope with something that's stressful if you're walking with him. For example, a friend of ours, a pastor in another part of Australia, the daughter that they raised, they did their best, but she just went off wildly into the world with all kinds of men and got into the drug scene and she became a, an addict. And they did everything they could for her. And they had her in rehab and in their home and they tried and this and that. It was just terribly stressful. And yet they just kept praying, believing, and yet at the same time had to kind of let it go a bit. And this friend, they went, they, he had to get away. He went to an island, a remote island location to surf and switch off and seek God. 
And on the island, he meets a young Australian who's from the area that he lives in, which is unusual. Turns out that this young guy is a Christian. His father's a pastor. And my mate pastor knows this guy's dad, the pastor. And then the young guy says a really weird thing. When he asks and get to know him over the, the week there on this island, there's not that many people there and they're just surfing all the time. And he gets to know him and he asks him about his life and his future and his you know, marriageable age and all that. And he says, I haven't found the right woman. I really want a woman who will challenge me. I've never met a man who says that. <laughs> young men, don't ask that and don't pray for that because there'll be enough challenges. <laughs> And you'll be bringing it on yourself because you'll be hopeless at bringing comfort. So it's not their fault, it's yours. It's not you, it's me. You know. Um, but isn't that a weird thing to say? And so this young guy goes, yeah, I really, I really want a woman who will challenge me. And of course, our mate goes, I've got, what's that? He found, yeah, the women that he had met, he found them, you know, just, it wasn't just a bit dull. And so our friend just thought, I know, just the girl. Maybe... Maybe it's too much of a challenge, but I'll at least, you know. And so he introduced them and she was still like out there and trying to beat addiction. And this guy just came into her life, falls in love with her and just walks with her through the whole thing. And she just sees the love of Christ in this young man and comes back to the Lord and back into the house of God. And falls in love with him. And today they're happily married more than a decade later with a bunch of gorgeous kids and following the Lord in the house of God. And this guy is just turning to God in his time of stress and God brings solutions. Isn't that awesome? So God is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth. And all the, the fifth point about Jesus praying is that he prayed for others. He prayed not just for himself. He prayed when others needed help. And there's lots to be said here, but let me just cut to the chase with one passage about Peter. I like this because when I say Simon, we've got Simon here. I always think of Simon this one. Simon, Simon, Satan has... And then when he says, but I've pleaded in prayer for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And you know Peter's story. He was wild and he turned and denied Christ, but then came back. And so, and Jesus, you know, he knew what Peter was going to face and he knew the best thing he could do was to pray for him. He could have warned him about the devil and about himself and about temptation and the problems coming. And after all, Jesus, you would agree, would have some good advice to offer. And he did offer advice. There were times when he didn't pull any punches like, oh, that's right, get behind me, Satan. You know, so he did say some strong things when it was necessary to correct or rebuke, but he prayed. He didn't just spit out what he was thinking. and He prayed for him. And there's a lesson there, isn't there, for us? And you see that, you know, I was saying to him before about being prayed up. Jesus prays for Lazarus, raises him from the dead because he's ready at that opportunity, at that time. He even says before he prays for Lazarus, before he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he says, Father, I know you've heard me because you always hear me. So again, he's, he's praying close to God and being ready to pray for other people. And I'd like to say more about that, but we're running out of time. So let me just conclude by saying for Jesus, prayer wasn't ever the last resort. It was his first response. 
and for all those different circumstances, just to walk with God in fellowship, to pray when bad news comes, to help you make good decisions, to pray with times of pressure and stress and 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 to hear the call to pray for others because that's what we are called for, church, not just to get through this life for ourselves, by ourselves, but to be intercessors, to be praying for other people who have not yet discovered God's love for them. And that is our calling and that, of course, leads to what we're doing this week, praying Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Come on, let's stand and pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.